Welcome to the latest episode of the Silver Screen Superman podcast hosted through Bureau 42. I'm your host, Blaine Dowler. This month we're talking about Superman 2, which actually exists in two completely different versions. And the reasons for that are a little bit involved and they're all on the back end. So we're just coming off the huge hit of Richard Donner's original Superman the movie. The way the Salkinds worked is by filming two films together, as we mentioned before. And everybody agreed the first movie had to be fantastic. But they agreed on that, coming at it from different perspectives. The business is called show business, and that's what they're in when they're making these films. Now, Donner put emphasis on the show side. He was out there to make a great film. And if you make a great film with a character that's iconic, the money will follow. That was his philosophy, and the box office returns on the original movie absolutely proved that beyond a shadow of a doubt. The Salkinds were looking at it more from the model of the Universal Horror franchises from the 1930s, or at least that's the way it appears to me. In those horror franchises from the 30s, they typically started with one film that just knocked it out of the park, and then they cut budgets on every sequel, just trusting that the people who enjoyed the original would keep coming back, and that proved to be true. Now, you do have some gems like The Bride of Frankenstein, which was still a great movie. Bride of Frankenstein, great as it was, was definitely cheaper than the original. So they just came in with a script that was strong enough that that wasn't an issue. That appears to be the approach that the Salkinds were taking with Superman, where they had that big launch and figured, okay, people will now follow. We can start cutting corners and, in the process, improve our profitability and take home more money at the end of the day. So they started cutting those corners. The first corner they cut was Marlon Brando. Part of the reason they may have done that is because Brando was actually suing them because he felt that they had underreported the profits from the first film and owed him money from overseas sales. And, you know, the, the Salkinds denied it, but the courts ultimately sided with Brando. The next corner they cut was the removal of John Williams. John Williams had been brought in on the first one following the huge success of Star Wars, and he came up with another dynamite score. I frankly don't think I spoke about that enough in the first one. It is an incredible score to the point that when Superman was brought through again later in Smallville, and again in Superman Returns in 2006, they're still using his score. Even though John Williams himself wasn't directly involved with Superman 2, the Salkinds hired Ken Thorne to step in and finish it, but he was still using John Williams' music and just rearranging it, sometimes quite blatantly cutting between suites that were written for the first one and just pasted into the second. It's just an incredible score. There's a few notes in there that a lot of people just recognize right off the bat. I have co-workers who've honestly never seen the Superman films, and they will recognize the score off the first two or three notes. It is just that pervasive in popular culture these days. The next major person that they cut from the film was director Richard Donner. Now, this wasn't a case of money directly. As I mentioned, Donner had established with the first one that he knew what he was doing. He was making his name as a director. He could have asked for more money, but from Donner's perspective... He had agreed to a deal. He was going to stick with it because that is what he agreed to. Nothing wrong there. The way they saved money by cutting Donner was by bringing in a director who wasn't going for the big set pieces and wasn't making the movie as large and as expensive to make as Donner was. Aside from that, they were getting rid of Donner because Donner and the Salkinds were no longer getting along. The major issue was that Donner had a very clear vision for where he wanted this franchise to go, to the point that he had plots in mind already for 3 and 4. And the Salkinds weren't looking in the same direction, and they weren't looking for the same escalation and the same story. So they were no longer on speaking terms. Donner was actually fired by a telegram sent either to his agent or to his lawyer. 
He wasn't even told face to face. And in a show of solidarity and as a means of demonstrating to the Selkines that they were just wrong to do it in this way, Tom Mankiewicz left as well. And although Mankiewicz is credited as creative consultant, that's as a result of his status with the union. He was the one who actually wrote the shooting draft of the first film and the shooting draft used for much of the second film. Richard Lester had already been brought on set. He had directed for the Salkines before with the Three and Four Musketeers films. They brought him in basically as an intermediary so that Donner and the Salkines could still communicate without actually speaking to each other. And in this case, he was promoted all the way to director. Now, a lot of the people who worked on the film were not happy with that choice and just felt that this was a mistake and that Donner deserved far better treatment than he was getting. One of the most outspoken people on the set was Margot Kidder, who made some very negative public comments about the way Donner was treated, and that is going to impact the way that her role was envisioned in Superman 3. And a lot of this is why we ultimately have two different movies. So some of these filmmakers and some of these actors were very much in demand. So Gene Hackman had already completed all of his requirements to free himself up for other things, so he was offset and no longer involved. Richard Lester didn't shoot one second of film with Gene Hackman for this one. So he was either unwilling or unable to come back because of prior commitments. That's not something I've seen anyone make any comments on, but he was out. Which meant Lester had these scenes with Lex Luthor that couldn't be changed aside from what you can do in the editing room. But in order for Richard Lester to get directorial credit on this, he had to film a certain minimum percentage of the film from scripts of his own, or at least scripts that had been commissioned and rewritten since he initially was hired onto the picture. So he could reshoot some scenes that had been commissioned under Donner but had not been filmed yet, and other scenes he had to rewrite from scratch. So he did have some chance to work with the actors playing the three Kryptonians, that's Terrence Stamp, Sarah Douglas, and Jack O'Halloran, but even a lot of their scenes were originally done by Donner. So Donner was the one that actually filmed the scenes in the Fortress of Solitude, although they had been changed pretty dramatically uh, for the Donner cut that came out in 2006. But what Lester did have access to was basically Christopher Reeve and Margot Kidder scenes, so he did a major rewrite of those. The first thing he did was change the opening. So before Donner left, and it was basically thrown out, there was no Paris sequence. So the initial sequence of this movie where Superman goes and stops the terrorists in Paris, sends the nuclear bomb out into space, which frees the Kryptonians from the Phantom Zone, didn't originally exist. In the original concept, it was married far more closely to the first film. So instead of having an opening credit sequence that was a montage of the major action pieces from the first film and not necessarily important scenes that led into the second film, Donner's started off with a, you know, a little bit of a montage, went into the space scene, and then in. Lester did the recap completely changing the style of the opening credits for this second film, and he introduced a new source for the nuclear explosion in space. The original footage, the nuclear explosion in space, was actually as a result of the nuclear missile that was heading for Hackensack, New Jersey, that Superman just sent off into space. It was that XK-101 rocket that ended up destroying the Phantom Zone imprisonment and releasing the three Kryptonians. So from there, it was also Lester's idea to do a lot of the scenes that we have around Niagara Falls. So it was Lester's footage in which you know, Lois throws herself into the river and you know Clark has to try and save her without revealing that he really is Superman, as she suspects. And they're able to do that with a lot of trickery, a lot of playing in it. Ends up to be a pretty extended and slightly goofy sequence. Then they go back to the hotel room and 
Lois is now convinced that Clark is not Superman, that she was completely wrong, doesn't know how she could have thought of that, and Clark accidentally trips and falls into the fireplace and doesn't get burned. And now the cat's out of the bag. And that, to me, has never worked. That's just... Superman doesn't have accidents like that. Clark will trip, Clark will fall, Clark will bump into things, but Superman's doing it deliberately to throw off suspicion. There's no way that outside individuals would learn he's Superman from the way he does this sort of thing. So from here, we we get the, the love story going. And the love story is one of the two emotional cores of the Superman films. There are action sequences that make up films, and there are emotional sequences that make up films. The action sequences with the plot points are the ones that are easiest to put in the trailer. You can see moments of those that will make complete and total sense. They've got everything you need, and that's it. On the flip side, the emotional sequences and the emotional cores take time. They need to be established. You need to have a certain set of moments that come in sequence to get this really and truly established. One of the emotional cores is the love story between Lois and Clark. Both directors recognize the importance of the love story between Lois and Clark. They handle it different ways, but they both recognize the importance. The other emotional core is that this is about a relationship between a father and a son, namely Jarell and Kal-El. kal may have grown up with Jonathan Kent as his father, but Jonathan Kent has passed away, and the computer simulation of Jor-El is all he has left. In this film, he doesn't even have that. It's Susanna York as Lara, who is showing up in the computer simulation, which is inconsistent with the first film and just drops that thread of the relationship between father and son that had been a big part of the first film. And it's actually the father and son one that seems to resonate, because these Kryptonians were imprisoned by Jor-El, and it's Superman's relationship to Jor-El that really drives them, especially when Lex Luthor tells them that Superman is the son of Jor-El. At this point, Lex Luthor has already escaped from prison, and it's actually a neat little device that's not just played for comedy, but which takes Otis out of the equation in a way that's consistent with the way he's handled in the first film. Because the way these Kryptonians are handled, there is no chance that they would have any tolerance for Otis and the way he operates. Just as a plot device, he needs to be out of the equation by the time the Kryptonians are introduced, or he just will not survive. So during his escape, Lex Luthor tracks Superman to the north, where he keeps disappearing off radar, finds the Fortress of Solitude, and learns everything he needs to know from the recordings there. And it's using this information that he can make himself valuable to the Kryptonians, at least for a time. And he's trying to leverage their new position to get himself a better position on the planet. And he's got some moments that really shine. When you take Otis out of the equation and you leave it just up to Lex, this is the classic Lex Luthor that I was kind of missing a little bit in the first film. Even just one little moment when Jimmy Olsen is running into the Daily Planet office with a cup of coffee and Lex Luthor takes it out of his hand, starts drinking it, Jimmy responds with, that's the chief's coffee, and Lex says, and the chief has it. It's just a, a great moment for Lex and for the two of them. So as the, the film progresses, we still see that Lois and Clark relationship, and I don't want to get too much into plot summaries, because the listeners are basically expected and encouraged to be following along and either watching it as we go, or knowing the films from having watched them so many times that they don't need to rewatch them. But we do get a few moments that are little bit out of place and slow the film down. So while we know that the Kryptonians are on the attack and they're marching across the Midwest towards the White House, we see Lois and Clark in the Fortress of Solitude basically falling in love. Uh, Clark's cooking for her. He's going on the road and gathering things for her. There's nothing else in his world below us now that they're together. And while those scenes are kind of nice, they just throw the pacing of the film completely out the window. So we go from the high-intensity action sequence to, you know, a couple of them sitting around at home and 
you know, the audience knows Superman has to learn about them, he has to react, he's nowhere close to learning about them, and it just takes a little too long to get there in a theatrical cut. They do ultimately come back. In order to be together, Superman has to become human, for reference about why this is. It's not clearly explained in the film. I recommend tracking down an essay called Man of Steel, Woman of Kleenex, written by Larry Niven. It's been published in print in two or three forms, I believe in End Space, as well as some of the earlier collections where it first appeared. It's also one of the first examples of online piracy, almost the day it was published. It ended up traveling around Usenet before the World Wide Web even existed back in the late 60s, or early 70s. Uh, if you go to LarryNiven.net, that will link you to the home of the only legal online reproduction that's out there. Everything else is a pirated copy. Larry Niven has never officially released it online in any other form. At any rate, so Superman is coming back, he learns about the Kryptonians, and he needs to regain his powers. He recognizes that he has made a mistake in the theatrical cut against his mother's wishes, because it's his mother that appears in the simulation. In the theatrical cut, we see him eventually make his way back to the fortress, go through the wreckage, pick up the green crystal that was such a big part of the first one, and then we cut back to Metropolis. We don't see him again until he's in the suit with his powers back, which is a very big plot point. We see him pick up the crystal. We have no idea how that reverses this apparently irreversible situation. And when we come back, we do get a pretty good fight. Now, the special effects haven't aged quite as well as some of the others, but compared to anything else that came out in 1981, there really is no comparison. This is the only way to have the three Kryptonians fight with live-action sequences. And we do get the moment where the audience understands Superman is leading the three of them away from the populated area because they are using his compassion for human beings against him. And Lex Luthor this time takes them right to the North Pole in the Fortress of Solitude. And the theatrical cut has some moments I really don't care for where Superman has powers that are never demonstrated anywhere else before he ultimately outthinks the opponents and strips them of their powers while keeping his own. And then in the theatrical cut, we need to deal with the fact that Lois knows that Clark is Superman, but recognizes they can't be together, the world needs him, what are they going to do? And Superman finds a way to kiss her in a fashion that wipes out her memory, which is another superpower we've never seen before or since. And then from there, basically we get a little bit of comeuppance, he goes back to that diner and beats up a bully that beat him up earlier, and really showed that he had a weakness. This film is pretty action-heavy, and that's true of both edits of the movie. When Puzo conceived the plot lines, the three Kryptonians were the third act of one long movie. So the first act was about Clark Kent choosing to become Superman. The second act was Superman versus Lex Luthor. He learns about his weakness with Kryptonite at the end of the second act, and then act three was all Superman versus the Kryptonians. When they split into two movies, they split it after the confrontation with Lex Luthor and kept this, but it's still structured very much like a third act with a lot of action sequences coming through. But as it came out, there were a few moments that didn't sit right with a lot of audiences, and it just it wasn't as good as the first film. It had a bigger box office opening than the first film, at least through the opening weekends. But long term, it was the original film that made the most money, especially on home video release, because that is basically the best of the four, at least the four with Christopher Reeve. As of the time of this recording, I would say this 1978 film is still the best big screen realization of Superman that we have to date. I'm going into Man of Steel thinking it's possible, but it's got a pretty high bar to hit. At this point, I will know because I plan to be there opening night, which was about a month ago. But since this podcast is being recorded in March, I don't know one way or the other yet. At any rate, there were a lot of people looking for this vision, and thankfully producer and editor named Michael Thau recognized that and was able to bring in documentation of internet conversations and such to Warner Brothers and convince them to 
find a way to release a version of this film that's much, much closer to what Richard Donner wanted. So Thau went through and he dug up a lot of old footage and Donner's old notes and spoke to Donner. And in 2006, they released The Donner Cut of Superman 2 on home video. So that's both DVD and Blu-ray. And there are some pretty dramatic changes. They've reshot that montage at the beginning, entirely replaced the Paris sequence. So while the theatrical cut had a montage of the big action pieces from the first one in the opening credits, the Donner cut starts with a montage of the scenes that are important for this film, and then cuts to an opening credit sequence in space, just like we had in the first movie. It also still has the Brando scenes that were shot and simply not included in the sequel, because that way they didn't have to pay Brando. There are some also pretty significant changes in the way Lois and Clark's relationship plays out. So the whole opening sequence in Parents doesn't exist. Instead, we get a great moment where Lois puts together that Clark Kent is Superman in the Daily Planet, and it's right out front and center. The one question that everyone asks about Superman is, why doesn't the investigative reporter figure this out? He's surrounded by reporters and none of them are putting it together. Well, this one does. Right to the point where you know she's even doodling glasses and a hat and suit right on an image of Superman in the Daily Planet and compares it to Clark Kent across the room and actually throws herself out the window of the Daily Planet on the 30th floor just to make sure he reacts. She's so convinced that he's Superman, she risks her own life. And we get a neat little sequence where he has to save her without revealing that he is Superman um, and still convince her that he's not. So it serves the same purpose as the extended sequence that Lester had at the Niagara Falls, but it gives Lois a little more respect in terms of her intelligence. She doesn't need to see Superman showing up at Niagara Falls to put it together. She sees him in New York or in Metropolis, which is clearly New York, and they go from there. When they get to Niagara Falls and he appears again, the doubts that Clark had thought he eliminated come back. Only this time, there's a great scene, which thankfully exists because it was part of the screen test. They never got a chance to film it properly. So when you're watching the Donner cut, you will notice that, you know, the clothing is inconsistent. They're using some footage from Christopher Reeve's screen test and some footage from Margot Kidder's screen test, and they were done a few months apart. So there's wardrobe changes, hair changes. In the scenes that focus on Margot Kidder, Chris Reeve is not always easy to hear because for screen tests, they don't necessarily point the microphone at him. He was their decision. They were pointing the microphone at Margot Kidder to decide between her and Stalker Channing. But it's far more sensical than having Clark trip and fall into the fire and accidentally burn himself. Instead, Lois figures it out and basically outsmarts Superman using a, well, I'm not going to spoil it. If you haven't seen it, see the Donner cut. It it is a significant improvement, not just because they keep the emotional core of the father-son, but because they have serious upgrades to the emotional core between the Lois and Clark relationship. It also restores the original version of the ending. As we mentioned in the previous podcast, the turning back the Earth to reversing time was originally conceived of as the way they were going to end Superman 2. But they decided they needed a bigger ending for number one, so they took that special effect, moved it there, and Mankiewicz and Donner were planning on coming up with another solution for the end of Superman 2. They never had a chance to do that, but for the Donner cut, they chose to include that ending, so Superman basically resets the world twice, rather than use the ending that was conceived by Richard Lester and his group that was used in the theatrical cut, which in my mind is, even if it's repetitive, it's still a lot better than that memory wipe super kiss. We also get, I think, a significantly better confrontation at the Fortress of Solitude in the Donner cut. We don't have the duplicate Superman. We don't have that S-shield being thrown around and attacking people. We don't have that telekinesis rays with those little white beams that come out of their fingers. It's 
very much a psychological confrontation. So when Superman leaves Metropolis and they chase him, this is when he realizes he is physically outmatched. He has to beat them with his brains. And that's the tack he takes this time. And that's the only tack he takes this time, which is far more in line with the character. And it shows the growth and it shows what he's learning. So this really is Superman growing up and becoming Superman to the point where you know he even walks away from Jor-El. The Donner Cut also has an alternate means of Superman getting his powers restored. And when I say alternate, I mean they actually have one as opposed to having him just pick up the crystal and then cutting away. So what we have here is still a pretty strong on-screen representation of Superman in both versions. Uh, in my personal opinion, the Donner Cut is a significant improvement. But again, that's my personal opinion. Although I suspect it will be a popular opinion among the people who are choosing to take their time listening to a podcast about the Superman films. At any rate, I'm hoping that you join us again next month when we go through Superman 3, at least the Richard Lester version of Superman 3. There are two film versions of Superman 3 in existence, and not just a straight edit. We'll be dealing with that in a little more detail later. And there's also one version that is not a feature film which I haven't decided yet, but it may be included as a bonus podcast down the road. If you'd like to see that, let me know. You can email me at bureau42podcasts at gmail.com, or you can comment directly on the Bureau 42 articles or leave a review at iTunes. However we go, please join us again next month when we go through Superman 3.